Welcome to episode 50 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. We made it to 50 after all. This episode is with Mick Clegg, the former strength conditioning coach at Man United. Mick was, uh, it was great of Mick to give up his time. He spoke about the importance of experience and the comparison between experience and qualifications. Um, he also spoke about working with Sir Alex. He spoke about the, the fittest player he had at United and also in his point of view, why Ronaldo has been such a success. There was loads more Mick spoke about, and you'll hear it in the episode. He went went into loads of detail about loads of different things, so it's great to pick Mick's brains and um, draw of his, from his experiences as well. So I really appreciate Mick giving up his time. You've probably seen now on our social media, we've released our latest network meeting, so it's I'm delighted to say that we're going to be going up to Celtic Park Home of Celtic on Tuesday, the 19th of November, 6 till 9 p.m. for our next networking event. We have two speakers, two quality speakers, Oliver Morgan and uh, Jack Naylor, both of Celtic. I'm really looking forward to this event. I think it's going to be great. I've actually never been up to Scotland and never been to Celtic Park, so it's going to be amazing going visiting um, the stadium, seeing those guys speak, and then catching up um, with all the coaches up there as well. We've already had some coaches book onto it, both from England and also up in Scotland as well. So if you are interested in coming, head over to our website, footballfitfed.com, and click the, the tab at the top, Network, Meetings and Events, and then you can get your ticket there. Um, it'll be great to see as many people there as possible. To celebrate our 50th episode, what we're going to do between now and the next week's episode, if you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review, we will send you over one of our eBooks that we have online. So one of the resources available on the website um, if you could do that, we have some great feedback in between episodes. People get in touch saying that they've enjoyed um, episodes, they've enjoyed guests, but it would be great if you could just head over to iTunes and just pop those as a review um, just to boost the show and get it out to more people. I'd really appreciate that. So between episode 50 and 51, if you could do that, we'll send you out a ebook, one of the resources available on the website. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mick. It was great speaking to him. I headed over to his, his gym and sat down with him. And I could have honestly sat down with, for him, um, with him for a few hours. So it might be something that we're looking to doing a part two in the future. Um, it was great to pick his brains. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I am delighted to be joined today by Mick Clegg. Mick, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Busy as normal. Yeah. You need to be. We're down here in your gym. Yeah. And um, yeah, we're going to have a chat with you about what you've been up to, where you've been, and what takes you up to current day and what you're up to now. So do you want to give a little brief overview of um, what you've been up to so far? What, in my life, you mean? In your life. Well, a lot's happened, and uh, I, I will go through it quickly, but my main thing is power. When I look back on my life, which is quite a few years now... <laughs> Um, I look back at what, what really was the focus of attention of my life because I've done lots of different types of things, jobs and, and um, training types of different athletes, etc. But there's one word that stands out and that's power. Now, the interesting thing about power, because obviously that's one of the main areas in coaching that I work on, is the fact that when I was a kid, mid my me, me dad worked in a power station and I got to understand from an early age what power was and how it was developed through, through uh, electrical power station and um, I became electrical engineer in the power stations and I was doing that until I was 30 when I actually went full time into coaching but prior to that the understanding of development of children was massive to me um, because I've got five kids and um, I got married very young and had my first child, Michael, when I was 19, bought an house and, and then I got into training when I was 20. I didn't actually start training myself until I was 20, but very quickly got into coaching um, 
the guy who run the gym actually saw potential in me, although I was as skinny as, uh, as my fingers, um, just from the, the fact of communicating with people. Communicating was the biggest thing, because you can take a very few exercises, and if you're able to communicate what you're saying, what you're thinking, what you're doing, what the outcome can be from this, then you can start coaching very, very quickly. Um, all my kids um, decided they wanted to be athletes, um, which was good, because we ended up with a gym um, early on when I was 25, so Michael would have been six. And then I had, uh, me and my wife had another child every three years, and obviously they follow patterns. Now, um, most of my work um, when I was in the gym, cutting through a lot of stuff, you know, that take too long, was uh, the, the real thing that interested me was Olympic lifting. Because you can look at um, how power is produced um, that's going to be really usable for athletes. And round about the same time, he ended up with a boxing club. And so power from the weights and the boxing really fitted together. But also, um, my son Michael was a footballer at the time, probably 10, 12, as these things are developing. And um, one of my sons, our Mark, he, he'd become a weightlifter. He was in the world's Europeans and British, etc. Um, and so the development was really through kids, watching them grow. When you watch them grow, you make sure they you know, have the proper diet and they, you know, they sleep well and you know, they're conditioned well from a point of view of getting themselves ready to be able to train and then go to school and, you know, competitions and stuff like that. It's all about being prepared. Um, and so I, I work through that with the kids. And then, because my kids were quite successful, they brought their friends to train at our gym. It's over the row of 500 metres uh, Olympic sports team. I started 35 years ago. And they brought their friends. So I started working with their friends. And then... The schools came to see me and said, look, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? I can see that your lads are doing well, but so are their friends. would like to come in the schools, you know. And I went in the schools doing a power development programme. And it was based mainly on Olympic lifting, but then into what was part of weightlifting um, was the power pentathlon. So we started developing these ideas on training and working with it and we found that it was overspilling into different athletes whether they were rugby players whether they were taekwondo or boxing or football or whatever the ideas that we was running with was really working and it ended up i go from a few schools to the all of Ma uh, manchester uh, going in all the schools in, in greater manchester in the 90s and i actually developed a power development program for the schools from that came um, an invite from um, Mancat down in Manchester to actually coach kids at first. And these were kids like from Side and places where, you know, there, was, there were rough times in them days, so they said. So I went coaching down there. And uh, we used the Power Development Programme to give kids an edge in whatever sport they was doing. But Olympic lifting was the one that really gelled everything together, it held it all together. And it's something that I've worked with ever since them days, and it's been um, very, very efficient and productive. Uh, we had a, a lot of British champions weightlifting, but they didn't necessarily want to be weightlifters. I mean, two of my own sons have become weightlifters, and like I said, they've both been in the world's Europeans and Commonwealth Games, one of them, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> But the offshoot was that a lot of young athletes were developing into really good athletes. And um, one of the big things that happened was, because I, I got on my badges for um, athletics, I'm an athletics coach, as well as weightlifting coach and a football coach, and obviously I did a long time with the boxing, although I didn't take a, a, um, a coaching badge, because I was so busy with everything that was going on. We had a boxing team, etc. And I mean, I, I took netball, which to me is a, another big power sport, you know, for girls. And it's fabulous, uh, the, the offshoots from that, if you train for that, can have uh, in different sports. But basically, I'm very lucky, I'm very fortunate that I went on basic training um, qualifications 
but had a mass of people to train. Mm. You know, so the experience was far beyond the actual uh, going into you know qualifications, and uh, I was quite successful. So when I went for any of the qualifications that I went for, they was asking me, "Well, what do you do? What do you do? What you know? How do you do this? Why do you do that?" You know, so I used to work with the guys uh, on some of the courses that hadn't had the same experience as me, but obviously they had the qualifications, and so I learnt a lot from that. And then, of course, being at Mancat, I'd, I'd done the kids, but then they wanted me to run courses for adults who wanted to coach. So suddenly now I've gone from athletes into the coaching aspects. And one thing stands out always um, from my experiences was communication. If there's a lack of communication, I don't care how many qualifications you've got, if you cannot communicate what you're trying to put over to your athletes, then you're going to struggle. I'd rather have a, a, a lad in here, I've got, obviously I have people all the time come coaching, you know, they want experience, so I'll give them that. And, and I've seen kids with loads of qualifications, but a lack of understanding how you need to use them qualifications to get the quality onto the athlete, which is what it's all about. And I've had kids come in here who know five or six exercises, and they can utilise them five or six exercises in such a way they'll get far more performance-related output from their athletes and all the qualifications in the world. Mm. So I'm really quite, uh, quite critical of people who are very highly qualified. I mean, a lot of people for go for jobs that their qualifications don't really want them to do. You know, they should be upstairs somewhere high above everything, <laughs> you, know, you know, doing all the tinkering. Whereas you need the soldiers on the ground who's actually coaching the lads to be able to perform. And that's the thing. And, and one of the things over the years, people have always said to me, what is your philosophy of training? And I've pondered that a lot because I've, I've read a lot of philosophies and when I see some of these philosophies, I think, wow, you know, you, you must be so intellectual. You must be, you know, really um, have a clever brain. But I haven't. I'm a very basic person. My, my job was bringing up the kids and then I got lumbered with all these other kids coming and then I was asked to coach and I got paid for it, which was great because that's where I've earned my living. And then suddenly something happens, you know, I got a knock at the door and will you run Man United's gym here? I opened in 2000 and started full time there. And of course, when you're asked um, to go and do a job like that, they're not telling you what to do. They're saying, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And so the great thing was Michael and Stephen were professional players. Well, Stephen was a youth player, but Michael was a professional player at United. And their fitness levels, in lots of ways, were higher than some of the better, well, best players there in certain areas. Um, certainly from a footballing point of view, United at the time, and still have, you know, a lot of fabulous players, really top-end players. But it's now, how can we um, utilise the athleticism of an athlete, along with the skills of football, to become the best footballer? And that was really the job. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm not just a drink because we talk a lot. No, no, that's great. That's it's really fascinating to hear see your story taking you up because I think I think majority, it's fair to say, majority of the listeners will know that obviously your time at United and they've seen I've seen numerous articles out there about working with certain players and obviously I, I think it's only right to touch on Sir Alex as well, the arguably the greatest manager ever. So. Um, one thing I wanted to ask was your experience with him. Um, what was he like as a man? Like, how, how did you find working with him? Because I've read a lot of stuff on him, and there's loads of things out there, obviously, and you see certain interviews, but for you to be working alongside someone like that must have been pretty special. It was special, and he's a very special man. Um, I don't think the way that I saw Alex Ferguson was the way that other people saw Alex Ferguson. Because working with him, and I used to train him as well, of course, you know, he's uh, a Scotsman who... Uh, I, I, did, I did the boxing, you know. I, I did specific boxing-type training for footballers. Like my Olympic lifting training is for footballers. Mm -hmm. It's not for weightlifters unless we're doing weightlifting. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I always made sure that the exercises that I did for each sport was, was generated through um, a power development programme or speed or strength or whatever. But... 
it was lent towards that sport that they were doing because I think you can make a lot of mistakes when you're going down the route of, well, let's do Olympic weightlifting that's going to make a footballer better. Not mm. necessarily so. Mm. It's got to be adjusted. It has to be adjusted. And you, you can see that, you know, over a period of time with the types of training that can be integrated with players, how that happens and works. The thing with that, uh, Alex Ferguson is the first thing I noted, because he didn't ask me to do the job, he just... Uh, allowed Rob Swire, who was a head physio, who I'd worked with for a while because of my two lads, Stephen and Mike, being down there. They get certain injuries, and uh, there's injuries going on in the team that do happen, you know, what physios have to deal with. And at the time, <coughs> during the 90s, where I was really learning my job, um, Rob certainly recognised the way that I did certain exercises were different than he was being taught himself, you know, medically or in any coaching area. So the first uh, main player that I worked with was Roy Keane. Now, from the point of view of Alex Ferguson, he's, he's watching what's going on. He's got faith in Rob, and he had a lot of faith in him, and so he should have, you know. So he used to come down and just watch what I was doing. And when you've got a guy like him, who has a reputation, mm. and he did have a reputation, um, watching you, you're wondering, well... I wonder what he thinks of what I'm doing. Not that I worried about that, because I'm very confident in what I do. You know, we hear all sorts of things, what people do, and confidence is one of the most important things. And like I said, right from the very first time I started coaching, I was confident, because mm. I knew a few exercises, I did them well, and I was able to commun communicate that over, and that's what I was doing with the first team. And the biggest indicator that you can get, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of this, um, Alex Ferguson said, right, I like what you're doing here. He said, when are you going to start training me? And I said, well, as soon as you get your kit down here and we can get going. And I trained him all, all the way through the time that I was there. And he used to love the boxing. Mm -hmm. So you find each different player that comes along, um, they have a different idea of what they need. And you've got to learn about them. You know, the, uh, the consultation is not done much anymore in, in football clubs. It's all about, well, I know what I'm going to do with these lads. They, they're going with the preset routines and they've been, you know, they're doing this, doing that. I never did that. Mm. I just sat and listened to the player. What do you need? What do you think I should be working with? And it was great because they give you little ideas and you run off then and try a few things and look for ideas and, you know... Um, you come back with something and say, is this all right? And I always remember Teddy Sheringham um, when I was there in that first year. Um, I was training Teddy and, and the rest of the players. And he really seemed to have this thing. Of, he didn't like me very much. I got this real bad feeling he didn't like me very much because of the things he was saying and he'd not done the stuff that I was doing before. And again, you know, like with Alex Ferguson watching you, you're wondering what they're thinking. Not that, I, you know, that upset my um, um, ability to, to coach. But I'm wondering what's in his mind. And the amazing thing was, probably after a week and a half, he had introduced me to his son and said, will you train my son as well? Now, I don't think there's any greater praise that somebody can give you than will you train my son. Um, Edwin van der Sar, he said, will you train your wife? You know, these things happen that really make you establish yourself in your own mind that what you're doing is what they want. And so I went across the whole of the plate and it was all doing different things. Obviously, we, we had a preset programme that we devised over a period of time, but there was always the individual training. That's where you've got to be creative. So you've got to become a creative entity within your coaching brand. And you can't learn that at universities. Mm -hmm. You learn that through observation. And we'll go back to Alex Ferguson. So I'm working with Alex Ferguson. I'm watching him. He didn't coach while I was there. I know he did early days, you know, when he went to United. Um, but he didn't actually coach. He was the, an observer of his players. You know, he used to sit in his office. He would be in the half seven every morning. He'd watch all the players coming in the cars. He'd watch what it was like getting out of the cars, you know, somebody listening to music, somebody having an argument with their wife or whatever, you know, couple jumping out of the car together and chatting, you know. He'd see them all disappear in the building and then, you know, a while later, all coming back out again. And he could see the ones running out, the others, you know, almost rolling out, some with the ball, some without the ball. And he was observing that. And, and this was a great thing for me 
was that I was able to observe him observing people. And so we then walked around the training ground, just across the road from um, the path, I should say, or car park from his, his room. And he'd watch training going on that was conducted by loads of different coaches over the years. And he'd just watch and he'd listen and he'd see. And then you've got all these great players at Man United, and then, because obviously I used to go to the games, I've got um, friends and people used to ask me questions like they do. <clears throat> and they were all, why is he playing him instead of him? And he, he's the best player in the world, why is he not on today? And why is he doing this? Well, Alex Ferguson didn't look at, the, you know, why he brought the player in. He, he's looking at what the player did when he was there. And he was observing to see, are they at the top at the moment? Are they going through a bad spell? Are they on that surge coming through? And he was able to put the players in that did the best job at the time. And of course, I used to listen to all this criticism of Alex Ferguson, even though he became so successful. It's because he was in tune with what was going on. It was observation. You know, and, and I thought, that is one of the, the biggest things that I need to do with my athletes. It's not about specific exercises. That is really not the key. Mm. The idea is, is you listen to him, you find out, you know, what went on in the last game, for instance. Well, you know, this went well, but this didn't. Well, let's have a look at why and what could we do about that? You know, and then you individualise so many different things. And I was so, you know, I trained with Ollie Gunner and Ruud van Nistelrooy and David Beckham, you know, um, Paul Scholes. I mean, to work with Paul Scholes is an absolute delight. Not because he wanted to do everything you wanted to do, but because you could listen to what he wanted and then formulate things for him. Mm. And when you did, it was amazing. It made you feel so good, you know what I mean? Uh, and and you, you need to feel good as a coach. You don't want to feel under pressure. You don't want to feel as though you're not getting it right. You need to be getting it right. And then you Ryan Giggs's and, and then ultimately Cristiano came and so many others, real Ferdinand. You, you know, that, the names are just amazing that yeah. I work with, but every single one of them had these individual elements to it. And that's what I was really brought up on from 2000 to 2011. Being able to create opportunities for my players to be the best that they can be, as far as I can see. I think that's, that's really great to hear because it's actually real relevant discussions that we've had recently on the podcast um, in terms of communication for one um, so like what you said you have tons of experience which taught you the ability to communicate and the modern day and this is probably being quite general but the modern day, day practitioner has all the experience but then very little sorry all the qualifications but very little experience and they struggle to put it across um, and then the other thing that we've spoke about loads again is managing the individual which obviously you've touched on now. We didn't talk about that beforehand, so it's really great to hear you speak about right. those two things because mm. um, they've been very relevant recently to, to um, podcast episodes. Right. I think one thing I'd like you to touch on, uh, well, I've got a, a list of things, but I think one, one important thing will be how your practice developed across the years. So how you, when you started at United, because obviously that was at a time where I think it's fair to say there wasn't many people doing similar things to you wasn't. clubs. Absolutely, no. I think you must have been one of the I was the ones first the full-time, yeah. you know, in the Premiership. So that, and then that obviously developed to, to 2011, when there must have been, was there maybe a few more at that time? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. all sorts of coming by then. So then, probably how... around about 2004, 2005, that's when it started to, you know, lots of people started arriving, was having all these meetings. FA was getting everybody in, you know, all these coaches all turning all the badges on, and, <laughs> you know, Watford and Wolves and, you know, Arsenal. Oh, you know, you go to these meetings, you know, where they're trying to show you new developments that are going on, you yeah. know. Uh, some of them were quite laughable, but others, you know, were pretty good as well. You know. Yeah. But, uh, so what was what was the biggest progression? Do you think across your career at United? What was the things that you implemented that changed across that time? Well, the the most important thing um, was meeting Ruud van Nistelrooy, because Ruud van Nistelrooy was different. He's wired different. What I've realised is if you look at an athlete, where is the point of what I started with and I mentioned power where does power come from where does power hips thighs cars 
Of course not. It comes from the brain. You know, it's, it's all about the brain. Now, when somebody like Rude comes along, he, he'd been injured, he had an ACL before United bought him, and he'd obviously got over that, but he came over. And, and the Dutch are very articulate, you know what I mean? And uh, he brought all his papers, his stacks of papers about what he'd been doing to, you know, rehabilitate, rehabilitate himself, you know, with, with physios, etc., to get ready for United. And so that was all fresh in his mind. And so everything that we tried was different to what he was doing because he'd already done all these things and now he needed to go from injuries, you know, rehabilitation into performance training. So the most important thing was to try and understand him as a player. What did he do? You know, how do we get the right performance training? And um, obviously, I'm not going to come up with all the ideas. What I want to do is search for what I can do to help the guy, you know. But I found out that he actually helped me more than I helped him. Now, the interesting thing with Root was the fact that he scored all but one goal, I think, was in the 18-yard box. Now, the 18-yard box is the most intense place to play. Because if you think of running into there as a striker, you've got the right-back, the right-sided um, centre-back, the left-sided, and then the left-back. Two midfield players could be in there, one or two of your own players, possibly, and then the goalkeeper. It's incredibly intense. And so what you realise that speed in that area was so necessary to be able to function and to do well, which he really did well. Yeah. Now, he was very fortunate because, obviously, Rude had David Beckham putting the ball in for him. David Beckham was incredible, you know, for the help of Rude Van Nistelrooy. And um, certainly during training, what I saw in games and when he scored goals, David was really, really important. But what you realise is that Rude's mind was wired so differently to others. And um, I said to him, so what goes on in your mind when you see the ball knocked into the box and you go racing in there, you know, to get it and smash it into the net? He said, well, it's quite interesting because I, I, I run in there and then I sort of go unconscious. I said, what do you mean you go unconscious? He said, I don't know what happens. He said, but I, I remember a certain point and then the movement inside the box, and then I almost like go unconscious, and then next news, when I gain consciousness again, the ball's either in the back of the net, rolls head, the goalkeeper's caught it, or whatever. He said, and I've no recollection of what went on, which was really interesting to me, because I'd started looking at the brain, how it works, and all the different assets and facets to it. And, um, but he said to me, in the evening, when I finally came down and fell asleep, what happened then? He's, I dreamed it. It came in a dream and I'd remember it. And I would recognise what I did and everything. But prior to that, I didn't. And that was really, really interesting. And so I started work a lot on the brain. And obviously, once somebody said something like that, ah, I don't. <laughs> once some, somebody said something like that to you, it can start you on a trek of something that's completely different, something that nobody else is doing. You know, um, and where do you get information about brain cognition and the way the eyes were? Now, we, we had a, a, a lady called Gail. Um, she was a university um, lecturer at, I think it were Moors in Liverpool or whatever. And she used to test the eyes and the, and the muscles of the eyes and stuff like that, you know what I mean, and try and keep the player's eyes uh, in good condition. But I'd, I'd <coughs> watched everything she did. In fact, I used to recommend to all the lads that they went to her, because not everybody would. Some people are very cautious about their eyes and being tested and stuff like that, mm. because they don't want to be seen to not have good eyesight. Yeah. Because the way the eyesight can work in a football match is completely different as when you're sat there looking you know, at some words and trying to read. Mm. You know, uh, the way the brain functions at speed is a lot different than you just being sat there observing something and these are the things that I've started to look into and um, brain cognition of course the ability to uh, multitask um, to be able to watch one or uh, sorry two or four or six or even eight things at once if you think about running into the into the box 
So he's running at speed. He's making that body move. You know, there's nobody else doing it. He's running into the box and he's looking for the ball, but he's also observing where the defenders are set out, where, where they are on the pitch. He's also looking for options. But the most important thing is the target. Where's my target? There's the ball. There's me. I need to get from here to there in such and such a time because it's all mathematics at the end of the day when you get in there. Well, it is throughout a total uh, football match. So I'm running in there. The ball's going at this speed. There's a defender going at that speed. I've got to make sure I get there before him. But I've got to take this specific target and hit it where nobody can get it, like the goalkeeper. Now, that was massive to me because one of the things that I heard a lot of when I'd watched things on television, say, like, Man United hit the target 18 times, but they haven't scored a goal. And Derby County hits the target once and they lose 1-0, you know what I mean? They're, they're very important statistics then. Hitting the target, i.e. the goal, is not the same as hitting a specific target that scores a goal. Complete different. And from that is where I developed my philosophy of training. Now, you've got a long... Um, video, uh, sorry, you know, talk time here because my philosophy takes a long time to explain. It's this. The philosophy of me over the years is score a goal. Why? Because that's how you win. And that's the arrow head. That is the philosophy. We look at what you need to do in football and then you backtrack everything that's needed to be done for you to be able to do that, whether you're a goalkeeper, a defender, or whatever. And obviously, it'll take me some time to explain to you what I mean by that. But you've got to have the focal point of what your message is and what you're trying to do to be realistic to players, because they won't just take on any old information that you give them. Because you've been, and you've done this and done that, and you've been other places, whatever, and you come and say this, it doesn't mean that they'll believe you. Because they have their own minds. They're the ones running around on the pitch. So I think my greatest aid to my development as a coach is to listen to the players, what they need, because they're there doing these things. And they will tell you. If you, if you have a group... I mean, when I first started at United, I was the only coach. I had 75 players from the first team right down to the schoolboys. As time went by, other people came in, blah, blah, blah. But if you listen to the top group of players about what they feel they need, the problems they've got and how they need to overcome them, then you've got to put something together for that. And they're going to give you all the information. You can get information from, you know, satellites in the sky and all these things. And, you know, and they can be relevant. But the more relevant evidence that you need to support your um, decision to give this exercise or that exercise or whatever... Is from the players themselves because they're in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. And once you really start to listen to them, then you'll gain so much knowledge it's untrue. Now, the problem nowadays is we have preset, this is what they need to do. Yeah. You need to do this. It needs to be so much ways. It needs to be such a direction. It needs to be so fast or, you know, such a distance. That's what you're telling them. But no, the honest guy, and they are honest, by the way, because they like earning money. Footballers yeah. love money, and they want to be the best that they can be. And if you listen to what they need, they will tell you what they need. And then it's up to you, from your experience and knowledge of training, to be able to bring something back to them and say, well, this could be it. Mm-hmm. And you know what helps a lot when you say it could be it? What do you think about this? I've got professional footballers coming down now to this new place of mine. And I'm not saying this is what you need to do. I'm saying, could this help you? Mm-hmm. And then you put them through it, and then they say, yeah. And then, like I say, one of the greatest things that's happened to me is where I just said, oh, will you train me son as well? Yeah. That's what it's about. And so that's where my philosophy came from. What is football all about? It's scoring a goal. Why? Because it's how you win. And, you know, people who win, they're successful, and people who lose, they tend to disappear. Mm-hmm. Now, that language is really important, isn't it? The way you speak and the phrases you use, and I'm sure that's been something that's been developed across your career. With um, the modern day coach, the ones that are, that we spoke about, that have come out of uni and they've done masters and PhDs and everything else, but haven't got the experience that, that you went through. 
what would be some advice you think in terms of approaching players, working with players, and, and and trying to get that knowledge across the players where a lot of coaches will struggle? It's simple for me to say, but I wouldn't say to uh, <laughs> a load of coaches, go and get married and have some kids and train your kids. You can't do that, can you? You know, um, that's what happened to me. But what I can say is any person who's doing a university degree course in coaching or whatever and isn't affiliated with a Sunday morning kids football team, then he's gone down the wrong direction and he's wasting his time. Because if you don't want to take the small amounts of knowledge that you're building, you know, uh, in your university degree course, if they're not giving you enough knowledge to go and coach some kids at a very low level, to give them a little bit extra than what they have. Because, you know, it's dads who run football teams and some of them haven't got any experience at all. Mm -hmm. So anybody who's on a, a university degree course or a college course or whatever, and they, and they don't feel that they have enough knowledge to go and give some free time mm -hmm. to a local football team, you know, Ducky Tigers or, you know, whatever, go down there and just work with them, do a warm-up and then do a bit of stretching and you might do a little bit of speed work, stuff like that. That's how you gain your experience. The problem is that people going for qualifications think in their mind, I want to be at the top club. Well, you don't get to the top club by doing that. You get to the top club by having the experience with the knowledge. And so every single person that's in coaching should be coaching. And they think, no, I've got to get the qualifications first. No, you haven't. You need to get the experience with the qualifications. And if you do that, guess what? You'll become knowledgeable. Yeah. with experience that is usable to a player or a team and that's the way forward no, that, that's great and I think that's really key advice um, to coaches I know you've mentioned a lot of names already and, and obviously we know the names that have played at United across those years what were some like common traits you saw and I know we spoke about the individual and the individual players being very different but did you see anything that like ran through the I'm talking like the top players now like the elite players that you work with well the common traits you know if I, if I looked at United when I first went there well I was asked a question first of all in the first three months by the management team they said to me who's the fittest player in United's first team squad and then I had to go out and I had to watch and make a decision because they wanted to know what I thought do you know what I said Teddy Sheringham what Teddy no chance no chance he's too old how could he be the fittest player it's funny that year he won the player of the season that was one of the things that got me cemented into that place because I didn't look at what squat weight he had on, mm -hmm. or how many chin-ups he could do, or even his sprint time. You looked at his energy around the place, the way he put himself about, the movement he had. So, if you're looking for a common trait, all them people that I've talked about, you're looking at their desire and determination. That's the difference. Desire and determination, but keyed with the most important thing. And this is the thing when we come to gyms and training in gyms and all that business, and I look at the gyms that there are and the places they go, and I think, oh my goodness, there's something missing, and it's not a rocket scientist needed to know what it is. It's called concentration. <laughs> now, if you're telling me that a lad, you know, a good player can go into a gym and he can you know, do his, his training whilst looking at that bird over there and listening to that music while the television's on with all these women strutting around with, the, you know, your, your high heels and all the rest of it. And then you do a set and have a chat with your mate and then you do another set. What a load of rubbish. You see, the whole idea is how you play in a game, which is the most important thing, is decided on how you train in training. Which, when you come down to the bigger um, base of the um, pyramid, it comes down to all the other little things. Now, if you go in there and you're slack in the gym, you're slack in the training ground, guess what? You're slack in the game. You can't turn it on like that. It's, the, the, the standards are too high now. The players coming into England are from all over the world. You know, incredible. And they're only bringing the best in. 
So you've got to be looking at being your best. When you go to sleep, have I got the telly on? You know, when I'm eating my food, I'm eating good quality foods with, you know, anti-inflammatories in it. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, am I late getting to the training ground, which puts me under pressure? All these little things, you've got to be totally dedicated and concentrated on what you're doing. And I don't think enough players do that. And that's why they don't go as far as they could. But the best, the best players are the ones that have the lot. Mm. Now, when I, when I first went, like I said, I said that about um, Teddy, but then I recognised that the person who stood out that by far the motives from point of view of hard work, putting the time in to what I was doing, was Ryan Giggs. Ryan was incredible. And guess what happened? He played well over 40. Mm. Now, along came a young guy a few years later, mm. And he collared me in the gym and said, I want you to make, help me to become the best player in the world. Exactly. And he said, well, do you realise what a player needs to do? Yeah, I do. I said, are you sure? Because how many people do you think have told me how they're good they're going to be? And, you know, the chest are out, shoulders back, you know, telling the story. Have you got it to see what Ryan's doing? and compete with him. Mm. He said, well, that's why I've come to see him. I've come to see what Ryan Giggs is doing, and then I'm going to do more, because I'm going to be the best in the world. Mm. And I thought, wow, this guy is really turned on. This, <laughs> this, this guy's after it. And he was obviously young then as well, wasn't he? was he? 18. Yeah. I worked with him five and a half years. He, he set the standards from me for how you work and develop yourself as a footballer. He set the standards. Now, I don't know Messi. I don't know what he did and what he does, and he's a great player. But to me, he set the standard. That's the thing. Now, the players that I see nowadays do not have what he has still got now. He's probably working harder now than he was when he was with me, as he was a kid. You know, Cristiano. Yeah. It's incredible. The shape he's in is ridiculous. But, guess what his shape's for? It's for playing football. Yeah. It's not being a weightlifter or a bodybuilder or, you know, I can, you know, I can sprint in such and such a time. It's about the brain being geared up to use that body, because here's the power. Here's the power pack that's there. It's above your eyes and to the back of, you know, to the bottom of your ears. That power pack in there is what controls the body that is used to play football. Yeah. And you've got to get it right to be the best. Most people haven't. I mean, nowadays, I see so many, uh, you know, I do a lot of rehabilitation here, micro tears through heavy weights. Mm. I'm not a believer in heavy weights. Well, well I, you know, I've, I've um, trained Olympic lifters, power lifters, all sorts, but they're not footballers. You know, the, <laughs> the new coach who's just got his job right there with his, you know, 18-inch biceps and the big shoulders and... <laughs> you know, and he's, he's talking to the players who's, who's skinny, you know, oh, you'll be like me one day. Well, I hope, hope they aren't, because they won't be any good at football. Because although they're, they're not as strong as this geezer, they're better footballers. Mm. Otherwise, he'd have their job. You know what I mean? And that's, the, that's what I'm seeing now all the time. These big lads who want to look great in the gym, you know, can stand in the mirror and really, you know, take a, a selfie and all sorts of look great. But can they transfer what they're doing themselves onto a player to make him a better footballer, mm. not to look a better physique? Yeah. I suppose there is the battle with that now, isn't there? There's I a think, massive battle with it. I think that's the... And I don't know whether this is just generalising again with the, the modern-day player, but the looks and the, the Instagram and posting pictures of yourself and all that seems to be equally as important, whereas... I think with, with someone like Ronaldo, he's had, you can see the work he's put behind it and the interviews that you see, and I found it really fascinating when you said, like, basically how you do one thing is how you, or how you do anything is how you do everything, basically. And I think he's very much like that, isn't it? You can yes. see that in all his interviews. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's the model. So, you know, people used to say to me, how, how did you get Cristiano from that skinny kid you know, into this big, powerful lap in, in, you know, six months. Well, we didn't. It weren't all down to me anyway. It was down to him. But we worked for five and a half years, and he, he never looked like a bodybuilder. 
looked like a damn good athlete with a good physique. And that's what he was. Everything was designed to score that goal. Now, there's the difference between Cristiano and Ruud van Nistelrooy. Ruud scored all his goals in the 18-yard box. Where does Cristiano score most of his goals from outside? There's a big difference between the two in the mentalities, into the way the brain works, into the two. And it's a fascinating subject that I'm still really interested in. And that's why, you know, there's some lumps of steel down there that's giving me the understanding of the, what the differences are. You know, I'm, I'm working on really completely different types of uh, training than other people are doing. So, and, and at the end of the day, that's why we've got the target area there, because they've got to be able to score goals. Mm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So they know what their job is, and then they know how to condition their bodies for it. Mm. And they know it from an athletic point of view, from a nutritional point of view, from sleep, blah, 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 mm. you know. And, uh, and, and just finally, because like, I don't want to take up your whole day which I could easily do on this podcast when we're chatting about all the different things you've been through but obviously Michael is now over at United which I think is great because it's a long term legacy now isn't it from you guys but on feeding back from him what are some of the biggest changes that you think from when you were in football not necessarily just at Man United but you were involved in football full time to when he is now well the biggest change is of course when I first went players didn't have to come in mm. hey what, they wanted to come in mm. they don't oh you've got to go into the gym and do this you're pre-having you're rehabbing you're all, all the rest of it you know obviously there's some of it if players were injured or whatever but they didn't have to go in it was their own self-determination that took them into the gym it's completely different now the gym at United is massive and everybody goes in I know Michael's you know he's, he sees so many players in the day it's, it's untrue mm you know, going into that massive gym. It was not like that in my day. You know, it was a much smaller gym. And the amount of different types of equipment were a lot different. Um, so he's got a lot more to deal with. And I, I, had, I had the easy end. Because at the end of the day, when I went in there, nobody did the gym. I mean, the first question I asked Roy Keane was, have you done any weights before? He said, no. you never done any weights before. No, I've never really been interested in weight. You know, I never thought it was any good. So well, how did you get, you know, your conditioning for football apart from specific football? I said, oh, well, I, I went to a boxing club. Uh, oh, that's interesting, because, you know, I have a boxing club myself. He said, yeah, I used to go boxing with his brother or something like that. You know. I said, oh, did, did you have a fight? He said, yeah, I had a few fights. So he, 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 he did quite a lot of sparring. And, of course, he had a, a few fights. And I said, well, this is an obvious question here. How many did you win? He said, well, I had three and won three fights. Said, well, that's interesting. I wouldn't expect anything like <laughs> But I said, I will be able to find out whether you're telling the truth or not. Mm. We had a little smile. So when I went down into the gym, once his, his knee was um, sorted out again, or ready to be able to do the work that I did, then uh, we started doing the boxing. And, of course, it set the whole thing of the gym alight because he was incredible. Oh, it's fabulous at boxing and of course he then stimulated all the others we want to go and see him you know and get some training get, get yourself fit you know and, and they did they all came in so I didn't have to go around asking people to come in and it was never you know you lot have got to go in they went in because they wanted to be in yeah. and that's the reason for this person came to look at the gym because why are they all going there I want to see why they're going there. And then he came in, and what's, what's the best accolade if you're not going to ask me to train your son? Is well, will you train me? Mm. So I did. Mm. I think that's, that's a good point to touch on as well, the fact that obviously someone like Roy Keane came to see you because he's going to be a big influence on, especially the younger players, they're going to look up to someone like that. He was the then, biggest influence. But then everyone, isn't it, yeah. as well? Yeah. He was the biggest influence across the club. Yeah. The way he was was so massive as an influence to everybody yeah so you influence that person and it filters around down exactly. to everyone well you've gone even above that haven't you with the manager as well no amazing amazing great to get um, some insight on that and like I said I don't want to yeah, yeah day, so I really good. appreciate yeah. all your time no mate, so thanks a lot good Thank nice you, to mate. meet you I hope you enjoyed episode 50 with Mick it was great to speak to him. You can go and follow him on Twitter. He's at Seed of Speed. So I'll spell that for you. So it's S-E-E-D-O-F-S-P-E-E-D. 
go and follow him on um, Twitter. I know he does put some information out there. Um, some of my biggest takeaways, because there was plenty that I took away from the discussion with him, was where he spoke about experience versus qualifications. It was great to get his input on that and obviously how his career was built on experience. He spoke about the importance of communication, which we've touched on time and time again in these episodes. Um, and it always comes up with the coaches that have worked at the top level, which I think should tell a story about um, your practice and, and the skills to develop. He spoke about understanding the inv- individual, which again was was a coincidence really. We didn't really speak about much before the, the podcast. We just got chatting and a lot of the same sort of topics came up that we've, we spoke about recently, recently with recent guests on the show. And then he also said about training, and I revert back to, I think it was episode 11 with, with Damien Hughes, where he spoke about cultural architects. And he, um, Nick touched on training Roy Keane, who was obviously the captain at United, and then also Sir Alex too. And I think if you're hitting and getting the cultural ar- architects on side, then that's going to pass through the team and, and that's going to help with the culture and creating culture at a club. So I found that really, really interesting. They were my biggest takeaways. It'd be great to hear what yours were as well. So once you've listened to the episode, get in touch or drop us a um, message on Twitter or Instagram or whatever social media platform you're on. Um, Let us know what your biggest takeaways were. And like I said at the start of the show, between episode 50 and 51, we are going to be giving away uh, an e-book for anyone that heads over to iTunes and leaves us a review. So please head over and do that. And then, again, what I said at the start of the show, our next meeting is at Celtic Park on Tuesday the 19th of November, 6 till 9pm. You can get tickets now. They're available on our website, footballfitfed.com. Click Network Meetings and Events. And we will also be bringing you um, another couple, hopefully, of meeting dates that are going to be held before the end of the year. We are um, confirming the 2020 meetings, but we're looking to um, hold another couple of events before the end of 2019 as well. So keep an eye out for those. Again, thank you very much for listening. Really, really appreciate it. Please share the show. Tagging friends, especially United fans, they're going to want to hear this one with Mick, um, telling all the stories about Sir Alex and all the players. And we'll speak to you again next week.